All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a minute and pray. Father, we, we thank you for the story. Uh, it's a reminder to us of, of what it looks like to live and take hold of the promises that you give to us. And so as we uh, take some time to consider what it is that Abram does, uh, help us uh, to cross the cultural barriers of what's going on uh, and see your gracious hand at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we start here, uh, we're, we're really coming to the end. There's the, this Sunday and next Sunday will be the end of our time in Abraham. Next Sunday we'll see Abraham's death. Uh, and, and, you know, for us it's been, you know, three months, I think, four months that we've been working our way through this story. But for Abraham, this has been a 60-year a journey. Uh, God calls Abram out of this place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is over by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and they venture north, and then they venture east, and they venture back south uh, in order to come to the land that God had promised to him. And there are three promises that uh, are really at the center of what God was trying to do with Abraham. So those promises are our child. Uh, He would have descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky, but he had no kids, Uh, That promise was that those children would be a blessing to the world, but again, no kids, so how can no kids be a blessing? Uh, And then the the, the third promise that was made was that he would own land, Uh, but the catch for the land part uh, was that, God says in Genesis 15, it would be 400 years before the land part would come to uh, reality, 400 years. Uh, So obviously, Abraham was not going to see the reality of the land. But a problem happens. Sarah dies, 127 years old. This is the only time in Scripture that we're given the age of a woman when she dies. And that signals to the reader the importance of who Sarah is. This is not just any woman. This is Abraham's wife. This is the the mother of the faith. If Abraham is the father of the faith, then, then Sarah is the mother of the faith. Uh, and so she's, she's passed away, and Abraham comes, and he has to deal with the realities. Like, he's got no place to bury her. Uh, there's, no, there's no place that he owns in order to lay her body at rest. And so what's he going to do? There's a, it's a crisis moment for him. Uh, and what he does is he, he takes God at his word. God had promised him land. God had promised him land in that region. And so by faith, Abraham takes the step of owning land. So what we're going to do this week, just like last week, no outline. We're just going to work our way through the story. We're going to work our way through the story rather quickly this morning uh, because I want to spend a good chunk of time teasing out for you what I think is the really uh, profound application that we have as we consider this passage. Uh, so uh, we are in Hebron. Uh, if you look at the next, uh, do you have my sermon slides available or no? No? All right, never mind. No sermon slides. Um, so if you can imagine uh, your picture of Jerusalem, there's this strip of water called the Dead Sea. Uh, and it looks kind of like a kidney bean kind of shape. And so just to the east of the Dead Sea is, is the region of Israel that we're in. Jerusalem is the very northern edge of the Dead Sea. Now, this is the region that Abraham has been living in. Uh, And so Hebron is the particular name of this region. It's called Kiriath Arba uh, at the time of uh, Sarah's life. This is where they built an altar. 
uh, early on in their journeys. This is where Abraham and Lot separate from each other. Remember, Lot goes down onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee into the region where Sodom and Gomorrah were situated. This is the place where God intercedes. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Abraham intercedes with the Lord about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the place where uh, their burial will be. It's also interesting, little side note, for those of you that are in the Bible studies, Hebron is the first place where David is crowned as king. Uh, so this is a really significant location uh, for the people of God. Well, Sarah dies, uh, and we're told that Abraham weeps for her. Now, it'd be interesting, right, because the bulk of the passage doesn't deal with the, the actual mourning. And so it would be tempting for us to be like, oh, he wasn't that sad because he goes on and immediately starts dealing with the, the problem, right? Where am I going to put my wife? But, but I think that would be an unfair reading, right? Uh, Abraham is a man of his time. And so we're told that he, he more he weeps as he is mourning. And this really is one of the standard ways that in the ancient Near East, you signaled your grief at the time of death. You know, every culture has different ways of expressing grief. I remember years ago, I was working with Youth for Christ uh, in South Florida, and the community that we were, we were doing ministry with, uh, there were a lot of um, uh, Haitian immigrants. Uh, and one of the, the, the mom of one of the kids that was in the Youth for Christ ministry that I was volunteering in, uh, passed away. Uh, and, and there, the, the, the grief at a funeral uh, was uh, very uh, emotive, right? You have, I mean, literally like yelling and screaming and throwing yourself onto the casket. Very much not the way that probably most of us express grief. Well, in, in Abraham's world, the way that you express grief was by uh, putting on sackcloth. So imagine, you know, imagine like the most uncomfortable clothing you can imagine, right? It's goat hair. Uh, it's not goat hair that's, you know, designed to be comfortable. It's goat hair, uh, probably black, and you would put it on. You would cover yourself in dust. You do all these things to signal your grief. And the reason you do that is because death is not the way that things are supposed to be. Um, death, is, death is a curse on our world. Uh, and Scripture gives us point, points throughout the story of Scripture. We're reminded of the reality that death uh, is not the way that things are supposed to be. There's a, a Christian philosopher by the name of uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, whose son was uh, killed, years, this is years ago now, his son was killed in a mountain climbing accident at the age of 25. And he wrote a book called Lament for a Son as an expression of his grief over the death of his son. And what he says in Lament for a Son is this. He says, what, so what was happening is, you know, people, you know this, right? People would come to him and they would say, oh, uh, he's in a better place, right? Or, or it's going to be okay. Uh, and what he said was this. He says, what I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my bench of mourning. Uh, and, and so really, seeing the scene of Abraham weeping over the death of his wife reminds us death is not the way that it's supposed to be. And it does create a crisis moment because what's he going to do with her? Where is he going to lay her 
uh, now that she is dead. All right, so what happens is Abraham uh, has this period of mourning. We're not told how long it is. Then he gets up and he goes to the city and he goes to the city gate. So this entire scene happens at the city gate. Uh, So that means that this, in effect, you can imagine this at the city council meeting. Uh, So all of the leaders of the city are at the gate, and Abraham comes and says, Sarah has died. Uh, I am a foreigner. He says, uh, I'm a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. Now, what's fast, he's been in this region for over 50 years, probably close to 60 years, right? And he still says, I'm a foreigner and a stranger, uh, there's this, you know, you, know, you all know, uh, before we moved here, uh, we lived in, in Boston. So there's this region of Boston just north of the city called the North Shore. Uh, and, and this kind of like very interesting, you know, Boston is a metropolitan city. So, you know, you, nobody's really from Boston, right? You kind of move in. I mean, people are from Boston, but there's lots of people who are not from Boston, right? Uh, but from in the North Shore, I, I knew some folks who moved to the North Shore when they were little kids, and they were still not regarded as from the North Shore. To be from the North Shore, you had to be born in the North Shore. Very similarly here, right, for Abraham to be from this region, he needed to own land in this region and he doesn't own any land. And so he comes and says, I'm still a foreigner and a stranger among you. And they reply, no, you're not. You're a prince. We honor you. Think of the stories that we've read. I mean, Abraham comes in. He like saves a bunch of them from the armies from the north. Uh, he's interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's a very wealthy, uh, um, um, uh, not a merchant. He's a very wealthy individual. The word I'm looking for escapes me. Um, and he says, I want a place to bury my wife. And they say, take whatever tomb you want. You can borrow any tomb that you want. No one will say no to you. So he wants to buy land, and they're willing to say, no, we'll let you borrow something. So Abraham takes the, presses his point and says, no, actually, I want to buy something. Will, will you please go to Ephron, son of Zoar? Now, remember, everybody's at the gate, right? So that would be like us having a conversation and me saying, go to John Jackson and ask John Jackson to do this for me. Right? Well, John Jackson's sitting in the room, right? So it was this kind of, it's not, and that's not passive aggressive. That's just, that's the culture. It's this indirect form of communication. Go to uh, I almost said John Jackson again. Go to Ephraim, son of Zoar, and ask him to sell me the cave of Machpelah. Um, now, initially, Ephron says, I'll let you, I'll give it to you, right? Does he mean he'll, he'll, he'll like give it in half? More than likely, it means I'll let you borrow it. Like bury your dead there. It's okay. But Abram says, no, I want to buy it. And so then Ephron responds, okay, fine, but if you want the cave, you need to buy the field and everything around it, and it's going to cost you 400 shekels of silver. We have no idea whether that is a fair price or not. We just don't know. But notice what happens. Abram does not barter. Abraham does not second-guess it. Listen, what is, listen, it says, Abraham, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms, weighed out for him the, piece, uh, the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 
400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. That's verse 16, right? Remember, like, this is a, uh, this is a period of time where words matter. Uh, the, the, the fact that you say something a certain way is trying to emphasize a certain point. What that verse is emphasizing is that Abraham paid 100% every bit of money that Ephron asked for. There, there's to be no doubt that this is now going to become his land. This is crisis moment. Sarah's died. He needs a place to bury her. He has no place to bury her. He goes to his neighbors. He says, sell me some land. They go back and forth. He ends up buying land. And now the crisis is resolved. And this is how the story ends. So Ephraim's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field were deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of the Hittites who had come to the city gate. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So which cave? Machpelah. Where is it? Near Hebron. Like it's being repeated to you so you know exactly what cave it is that we are talking about. Uh, and then it says, so the field and the cave were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And so what ends up happening is that not only is Sarah buried there, but in Genesis 25, what we're going to look at next week, Abraham is buried there. And then in uh, Genesis 35, we read that Isaac is buried there. And in Genesis 49, we read that his wife, Rebecca, is buried there. And then in Genesis 50, we read that Jacob is buried there. And then in Genesis 49, we read that one of Jacob's two wives, Leah, is also buried there. So that land belongs to Abraham, it belongs to Isaac, and it belongs to Jacob. You can actually, if you Google it, cave of the patriarchs or tomb of the patriarchs, Google it when you go home, don't do it now. Uh, It's a rather impressive uh, building. Uh, and, and from what the little bit of research that I did on it, they're fairly certain that that is in fact where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, and Leah were buried. Now that's all fascinating, right? But what on earth does that actually have to do with us today? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so Abraham has a need. What is it that Abraham needs? He needs, he needs a burial site, right? He needs a place to put the body. Now, what's fascinating about this, and this is one of those places where uh, paying attention to words as they are repeated in our English translations pays huge dividends for us. Um, so what you'll notice as you read the passage is that certain words are repeated again and again and again. And one of the phrases that's repeated three times in the passage is the phrase burial site. We see it in verse 4, sell me some property for a burial site. We see it in verse 9, sell to me for the full price as a burial site. We see it in verse 20, the field and the cave were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Now, um, 
you know, not every translation does their work exactly the same. Sometimes they take some, you know, words have a range of meaning. Um, but fascinatingly, uh, when we are told that Rachel and Leah were buried at this particular cave in Genesis 49, the same word is used, except this time it's translated as burial place. Uh, so Abraham bought, the, describing the property, they said this is the burial place that Abraham bought. And when Jacob is buried in the next chapter, in that same location, we're told again, this is the burial place where Abraham, Sarah, Rachel, and Leah, Isaac were all buried. This is the same burial place that he bought from Ephron, the Hittite. So no, no doubt, we're talking about the same location. Now, the first time that word shows up is not in Genesis 23. The first time that word shows up is in Genesis 17. What happens in Genesis 17, you ask? Genesis 17 is where God is making the covenant with Abraham. It's one of the three passages where God is saying like, hey, this is what I'm promising to you. A covenant is promises that God was making to Abraham. And as the Lord is giving these promises to Abraham, he's saying one of the promises that you are gonna have is that you are going to possess the land. The word possess is the same word. Let me read it to you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting. This is Genesis 17, verses 7 to 8. I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, uh, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession. That word possession is the same word. To you and your descendants after you, I will be their God. So now it's 38 years from when that promise is made to Sarah dying. 38 years, no land. 400 years before the Israelites will come out of the wilderness and go into the land of Canaan and take the land that God had promised to them. What is Abraham doing? Abraham believes God. Abraham believed when the Lord said, this land will be yours in 400 years, long after you are dead, this land will be yours. And so Abraham in faith says, I want to take possession of what God has promised me. He's taking God at his word. And in taking God at his word, he says, I'm going to lay hold of the promise. See what's happening here? It's, it's, this, is, this is incredible, right? This is an act of faith on his part. He's like, this promise I will never see, but I'm gonna live in the reality of this promise now. I'm not gonna be satisfied with burying my wife in somebody else's tomb. I'm gonna establish a beachhead of God's grace for my family. God has made you promises. Do you believe that? The Lord has made you promises. Some of those promises we get to enjoy already, right? So, so um, you know, the, the scripture says that, that when we put our faith in Christ, when we come to a saving understanding of who Jesus is, 
right, that one of the promises that we're given is the promise that God's spirit will come and dwell with us. He, the spirit will come and he will teach us and comfort us and help us to pray and do all these things for us. That's a promise that has already been fulfilled. It can't be fulfilled more than it has already been fulfilled, 100%. One of the other promises that we get, right, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. 100%, it's done. There, there can't be any more forgiveness than the forgiveness you've already been given. You've already experienced 100% of his forgiveness. But you and I both know that there are promises that Scripture gives us that haven't been fulfilled yet, right? We're, we're saved from the penalty of sin, but we all know that the presence of sin still has, still alive and kicking uh, in our hearts. Or we look at the world around us, right? We, you know, we talk about wanting to be a church that, that helps people experience Jesus in every part of their life and, and uh, uh, share Jesus in every part of the city. And, you know, like, you, what are the needs of our city, right? We think of, like, our ministry partners and things that we're doing. Think of homelessness. Like, the promise of God and his word is that this world will be a world in which there is no suffering, and yet every Sunday that we come here and there happens to be an encampment across the street, we're reminded of the suffering of this world. Right? We smell it. We step over it. It's like assaulting. And yet we believe that God says, we hold out this promise that says this world will have no suffering. And so what do we do? Like Abraham, we hold on to the promise, this world will be a world in which there is no suffering, but that's not the reality now. There's this gap between the promise and our present reality. And so living in the gap is walking by faith. Living in the gap is following the Lord, and it's not just waiting, but it's acting, right? That's what Abraham does. He could have just said, well, God promised me this land, and so I'll bury Sarah here, and one day this land is going to belong to all our descendants. But instead, what he chooses to do is to act on the promises that God has given him and buy a plot of land. In the same way, some of us, as we seek to, to be a church that is sharing the gospel in word and deed throughout every part of San Diego, right? Some of us have uh, been feeding homeless. Some of us are working towards uh, uh, helping uh, find housing for homeless people. Some of us have uh, been helping with uh, the San Diego Rescue Mission. Uh, and some of us have been involved in a program called Walk With Me, where we spend time with folks who are moving out of homelessness. Why do we do that? because we're acting out. We're taking steps of faith that say we believe these promises are true and God is calling us to make them truer in this world. Same thing goes for uh, refugees, right? God says in his world that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no war. And yet we know that there's war and the reality of that war means that we've had Afghan and refugee, uh, excuse me, Afghan and Ukrainian refugees coming from the other side of Atlantic. The, the, uh, the wars that happen within Central America 
right, that don't get as much press in our country, those wars are driving people to our southern border seeking help and assistance. And so what do we do? We long for that day when wars will cease. We wait for that day, but we don't just sit idly by, right? We welcome neighbors. And so what that's meant for some of us is that we've been a part of good neighbor teams. We've been work, walking with, uh, with specifically with two uh, refugee Afghan refugee families. I could go on. I actually had like five more, but I'm going to stop, right? Because there, there are so many ways that we experience that gap. And so my question for you is, where are you experiencing the gap? God has these promises, and they're amazing. And yet you look at your life, and you're like, that is not at all my reality. This is one of the most, you know, if you're here and you're like, what is this Christianity thing about? Like, this is, this is honestly like one of the most compelling things about the Christian faith is that our hope is not in this world as it is now. Our hope is in this world and in the Savior of this world as it will be when he comes back. But we don't just sit around waiting for everything to be magically fixed. We walk by faith, and walking by faith means that we take hold of the promises that he has given to us. And that begins with the promise of salvation, which we already talked about, right? But then all of these other promises flow out of that. Because of his faith, Abraham takes God at his word and he acts. He walks by faith and he takes the action of buying this plot of land in order to bury his wife as a sign that he believed God, that he took God at his word. And in the same way, you and I are called to to, uh, look at the promises of God. And when we see that gap between where the promise is and the reality of our lives, the reality of our world, to walk by faith. And walking by faith will often mean that there are things that he is calling us to do in order to take those promises and make them truer in our world today. Death does not negate the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your promises uh, are, um, are not stopped because of death. Uh, and so as Abraham walked by faith, and um, bought that plot of land as a sign that he took you uh, and took your promises uh, for what they were. Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to discern, to understand where are the ways that you're calling us to see those promises that you've given uh, and to be able to walk by faith as we seek uh, to make those promises truer in our world um, and to close the gap. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.